Welcome, everyone. Hello. Uh, welcome to Hitchcocktober. Hitchcocktober. Uh, this is the first cast in what will be an annual tradition. Each October, we're going to be looking at two films from the great Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, the man deserves all the recognition. We'd actually considered just doing this entire month as like a theme, you know, trying to do as many as we could, but his films, each individual one, really deserves as much focus as it can get, so we're just going to do two films. It's funny, because we're starting, part of the reason to do Hitchcock in October is because he's a suspense director, so we're starting with probably one of his fluffiest and lightest films. <laughs> North by Northwest. We're really safely assuming that most of y'all have seen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There's no way we can talk around this film. No. Which is important because we're discussing everything from the opening credits to the very final shot in this cast. Believe me, I have a lot to say about that last shot. (laughs) Yeah. The origins of the film are as follows. Uh, Hitchcock was doing his only film he ever did for MGM. I wondered about that. Because later in his career, he did a lot of stuff for Universal. Yeah. This was his only film that he did for them, and the plan was that he was going to do something else. It was going to be another project. I forget what the project was, but um, he uh, had been hooked up on this project via Bernard Herrmann, his uh, master composer. Uh, Herrmann had uh, introduced him to writer Ernest Lehman, who... Let's just pause for a moment to point out that Lehman is a legend in uh, the field of screenwriting. There's pretty much nobody who can even compare to him in terms of how important he was as a figure in that day. Mostly worked on adaptations, did a few original pieces here and there, uh, this being one of them, and Lehman was, I mean, he was just one of the greats. Sweet Smell of Success, based on his novella. He worked on Sabrina, he worked on... Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? The Sound of Music, West Side Story. Great films. This was a guy who was incredibly important in this field. So Hitchcock and Lehman uh, got together on this project, and Lehman just was not enjoying it. He was not enjoying the project he was working on. And so Hitchcock's response was, "Mm, okay, let's toss it out. His ego being what it was, he figured, well, MGM will take anything that I will give them. Wasn't that originally supposed to be, like, The Old Man, The Sea, or something like that? No, 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 although, boy, I would love to see what Hitchcock's uh, project take on that would be. That story is lifeboat. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, (laughs) So, basically, these guys started talking about ideas that they had for things they thought would be awesome to see in a movie. Hitchcock had the rights to a, uh, this movie isn't actually inspired by a real-life story. Is it really? Yes, a spy operation uh, during World War II where the um, Axis were kept off track by being made to follow around a fictitious agent that didn't really exist. So, Oh, that's funny. You know, Hitchcock was really fascinated by this idea, and he and Lehman just started throwing out ideas for scenes, things they thought would be fun to see. Hitchcock wanted to see a chase on Mount Rushmore, and he had a really stupid, stupid idea. He wanted to see a man get killed by a cyclone. (laughs) Lehman stepped in and said, yeah, this is a stupid idea, Uh, but what about a crop duster? (laughs) And so 
basically these guys spun together all of these little disparate ideas that they had. And that's how you wind up getting the finished film, is they put these ideas together, they spun them together using this uh, idea that Hitchcock had purchased, and uh, that's, that's how you got the finished film. It's kind of a patchwork of ideas. And I'm going to admit it, it shows. It does show, yes. It is a series of set pieces. Yeah. But really, it doesn't matter, because it is enjoyable as hell. This is one of the most entertaining movies of its day. This movie, honestly, I think the reason that this movie resists a remake is it resists the need for a remake. There is nothing about this film that you could really and truly update and have it play any differently. This thing is fun. I actually watched it uh, back in 2003 in a class uh, in my high school English class. We watched this as our film study because we, we did a unit on film and this was the film that was chosen. We were gripped by it because it's, it's a fun, fun, fun movie. It's frequently laugh out loud funny. That's the thing that's so great about it. Well, it is. There, there are a number of classic lines in it. Gary Grant. So much to say about Grant. I think this film was my first introduction to him, actually. I don't think it was mine, but I know that I've seen him, you know, it was, it's, it's certainly one of his strongest, uh, performances. I mean, I, I guess the, I guess a good place to go here would be let's talk about the plot. Why don't you take it over? Cause you just watched it last night and you probably do a better job of summing it up than I did. Basically, the plot of this film is that it spurs from a simple case of mistaken identity. Curry Grant is Roger Thornhill. He is an advertising executive and really kind of a kind of a slimeball advertising executive. Twice married. Twice married, yeah. You know, he goes everywhere with his secretary. Is always, always, always busy. To save time getting a cab, he butts in front of another couple saying that I beg your pardon, I have a very sick woman here, you don't mind do you? Well, no, Thank I mean, uh, perfectly all right. One day he's at a hotel, and there's a page over the intercom for a Mr. George Kaplan. Coincidentally, at that moment, he wants to send a telegram, so he raises his hand to the to one of the porters to send a telegram. So, and these two men, mistaking him for George Kaplan, you know, hold a gun to him, tell him to get in the car, and then it goes from there. It spurs a whole series of events wherein these... Bad guys think he's George Kaplan and get him drunk. Try to stage an accident where he's drunk drives off a cliff. But that goes haywire. He's arrested by the police. Nobody believes his story. His mother doesn't believe his story. Which, by the way, Hitchcock has a thing about mothers. Yes, yes he does. As will be illustrated in the next film we do, but... You think. <laughs> so he investigates and that, you know, this George Kaplan thing goes into goes to his hotel room it just gets him in deeper and deeper and deeper and then of course we come to find out that george kaplan is a made-up identity by the fbi the fbi it's never specifically noted in fact they they even have a joke about that you're police aren't you or is it fbi fbi cia oni we're all in the same alphabet soup by a government agency filled with spies yeah we come to find out george kaplan is a made-up identity and uh, he fill in one which Roger Thornhill has stepped into nicely. So they decide to do about Mr. Thornhill. We uh, we do nothing. Nothing. That's right. Nothing. 
Oh, we could congratulate ourselves on a marvelous stroke of good fortune. Our non-existent decoy, George Kaplan, created a divert suspicion from our actual agent, has fortuitously become a live decoy. And is completely untrained. Yeah. Yeah, eventually they step in. But, yeah, then he meets uh, Eva Marie Saint. I forgot her name. Eve. They kind of fall in love on the train. And he also has a thing with trains. That may more be a reflection of uh, the era of the day. That's true. That's true. Uh, Hitchcock leads you to believe that she is working for the bad guys. Which I have to jump in and say, when we watched it in my English class, we stopped off on the moment where it's been revealed that she's in on things. For the weekend. Uh, and the class was furious. Son of a bitch. Mm. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a horrible time to stop. I would argue it's a perfect time to stop. <laughs> yes. He finds this out, that she's in on it, and he's he's arrested in order to stop himself from being killed. Well, okay, I'm missing a major plot point. He tries to track down the guy who kidnapped him, Townsend. And he finds him, and it's not the guy who... It's not the guy who had kidnapped him. So he asks her a few questions, like, Who's staying at your house, and who, blah, blah, blah. And then the guy winds up with a knife in his back. He grabs the knife, you know, not in disbelief. He's like, there's a knife here. And the, the guy falls into his arms, and then... Well, it looks like he stabbed the guy. So now he's a fugitive. Uh, he gets himself arrested. He tries to tell police... They're about to become heroes. Don't you know who I am? Chicago police capture United Nations killer. It's him. That's right. Congratulations, man. Just to avoid being killed by these guys, the police are given instructions by the government agent to you know, turn them over to the agency. And the guy fills them in that, hey, uh, she's not working for them, she's working for us. So you just exposed her. Good job. Things go down at uh, Mount Rushmore. By the way, that visitor center, I've actually been there. It's really cool. I wish I had seen North by Northwest at that point. Now, of course, they didn't actually shoot there. They, needless to say, they really did not have permission to shoot there. And, uh, well, <laughs> let's hold the thought about permission to shoot. Yeah, that will come up. So, yeah, they, they stage a fake shooting where she shoots him uh, in, in a very public place, the visitor center of, at the base of Mount Rushmore. And, of course, they're blanks. You know, that way she can prove her loyalty and she can go with them to wherever, you know, as and still be, still keep her secret agent status. Thornhill finds out that she is going with the bad guys to this other country where she's going to work as an operative, and he does not like that. So he goes to the mansion at the top of Mount Rushmore. There is no mansion at the top of Mount Rushmore. It's a bluff. Anyway, he goes to the mansion at the top of Mount Rushmore and finds out that they're onto her when they find her gun filled with blanks. It all winds up basically being a chase down the face of Mount Rushmore, which is brilliantly done. It absolutely is. They escape, and that's the end of the film. And, well, they get married, actually. It is spectacularly silly. There's also a thing with microfilm, but, you know, that's not very important. No, it, it is spectacularly silly this motion picture i mean just sitting here listening to the plot if hitchcock had tried to play it deadly serious this wouldn't have worked no it still would have come off as silly and i'm not saying that it's not suspenseful because it's damned suspenseful god yeah that crop dusting scene yeah he's right he's right that that's really effective stuff mm -hmm. it's it's iconic for a reason 
this was my first time seeing it in a while, so I forgot most of it. Uh, I forgot how long that scene plays, and how long before the Crop Duster actually starts attacking him. Like, there's maybe a good five or seven minutes in there, where he's just waiting for whoever he's supposed to meet. And it's just, it's just passing cars. Yeah. And yet it builds, each one builds suspense. You see a car coming down the dirt road, he's like, oh, that's probably it. Guy gets out, thanks the driver, goes away, and they're just standing on both ends of the road. It's so suspenseful, it's almost silly. It's really Hitchcock playing you like a piano. It is. Hitchcock actually does use that. You know, he was, I forgot who he was talking to, but, uh, you know, he described an organ. You know, screening movies will be as simple as playing an organ. Hit this note, and the audience feels frightened. You hit this note, and the audience laughs. He works it. He works the audience. He works it. He, he, he captures it better than just about anybody. I mean, he really nails the... I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain. But yeah, Hitchcock knows what he's doing. It, it's really effective in this film. Especially because he doesn't let the pace debate for very long. There's always something happening. He's always pulsively sending you into the next scene. But yeah, especially in that last, like, how the film ends, it almost ends abruptly. It does. It's such a brilliant way. She's about to fall off Mount Rushmore. He's reaching for... Uh, at this point, the bad guys have been defeated, but she's, like, in danger of going over the cliff. Come on, I've got you. Up. I can't make it! Yes, you can. Come on. Come along, Mrs. Thornhill. And the very next shot, he's pulling her up into his arms, and they're on a train, and they're married. It's like, oh! And then it ends. Let's talk about that last shot for a moment. <laughs> Train going into tunnel. Yeah, that's 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 <laughs> subtle there. That's completely subtle. And the thing about it is, it's subtle in the way that the rest of the film is subtle about sex, which is to say not even remotely. Right. It implies heavily that they did indeed have sex uh, on, the, on the train the first time. Like, it all but says it directly. And I mean all but says it. It's kind of amazing what they were able to get away with. And it's to be stressed, it's not like this was some minor little film. This was this was a big hit. You know, it was a big successful film and a big major studio film. But yeah, it's it's pretty blunt about the uh, sexual content. Especially just the just the interplay between uh, Grant and Saint is very sexually charged. And frankly, it's pretty damned effective too. It is. They have good play together, and it, it works. We should talk a little bit about uh, the MacGuffin element, because I think that's the big thing to talk about this movie. Describe a MacGuffin to me. MacGuffin. A MacGuffin is a thing in a story that... It, it ba it's basically the catalyst. It drives the story along. It's not really that important to us as the audience, but it's important to the characters. And it's their drive, basically. That's pretty much it. And this movie is a giant long MacGuffin. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just one thing after another, after another that they chase after. Captain. Page Mr. Lester Townsend, please. Why else would you have decided not to tell her that our little treasure here has a belly full of microfilm? What's funny is that they are so literally unimportant. 
We know nothing about what's on the microfilm. We just know it's secrets. And we don't care. We don't know. We never actually know why they're after George Kaplan. No. We don't know who the villain is working for. We just know he's bad. We know he's a bad guy. It's it's amazing to me that the movie gets away with this. Because try and imagine doing this in the modern day. Yeah. Like, they didn't tell us anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, the movie doesn't. The movie does not tell you a damned thing. And really, do you ever think about that while watching the film? No, no, you don't. You don't care. You don't care. Edgecock knows you don't care, so he leaves that info out. Yeah, I mean, it's just that simple. Hitchcock knows we don't care. You know, he doesn't deal with it. It's like you don't need to know that information. Just, just jump ahead. I mean, my god, this movie is wall-to-wall that feeling of just propulsively sending you forward. And it's funny, because as soon as characters achieve a goal, it's like, on to the next one, on to the next one. He's so not concerned with resolution that, again, we really don't get a resolution. For the main story, no. We have no resolution. It's like, yep, they're dead, that's it. Yep, all that's important is that the main characters live happily ever after. And they don't even show him rescuing her. I love that. No, they don't. It's great. We know he did. I mean, it's made obvious that he did. But a normal movie would have shown that, would have shown the aftermath. Hitchcock's like, screw it. Just, you know. Yeah, call that shit out. It's not important. And it's worth it. Because you have that amazing shot that transition that's one of those great transitions i mean that's up there with citizen kane in terms of uh, transitions it's just this brilliant wit and economy of it because the reference to mrs thornhill tells us everything we need to know the point that i'm trying to make is that yeah it's this great transition that just really grabs you and yeah, li- literally oh yeah yeah, because it's, it's, it's a grabby film. One thing we need to talk about is the uh, opening credits were done by uh, Saul Bass. Yeah, it didn't he uh, didn't he do a lot of uh, Hitchcock's? Yes. So I know I know he did Psycho too. Yeah, frequent collaborator. Just brilliant. The uh, you know all all of them are angled against what appears to be a surface. And it's just it's color and uh, color and lines. Those lines transition into the side of a building quite smoothly. Visually stunning. Yeah. And of course, after, it doesn't stop there either. The credits uh, go in and out on shots of people, and they kind they almost interact with the uh, with the shots themselves. Yeah, right down to the last credit. The last credit, the big one, uh, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It goes in on screen from the left, and then... As it's going out on screen, Hitchcock himself is chasing after it. In in the shot, he's actually chasing after the bus, which closes the door on him, and he misses his bus. Yes. <laughs> That's the obligatory Hitchcock cameo there. By this point in his career, uh, he has done it so much that he knows where to put it. See, it used to be somewhere in the middle of the film. He didn't want it to break the, uh, the immersion in the middle of the film, so he started putting it like toward the front. Uh, there's a great Curls Before Swine cartoon where Pig is watching uh, one of Hitchcock's movies. He uh, then loudly shouts out, Found the Fat Man, and turns the movie off. 
That's good. Yeah. It illustrates it pretty well. Um, that, that, that was a smart decision on Hitchcock's part because it lets us focus on the rest of the film. It's like, okay, there. Yeah. There's me. Okay, let's go. And not, hey, look, there's Charmelon. Oh, he's still on screen. Oh, he's still on screen. Oh. Oh. Okay. Oh, he's the savior of the universe in this movie. <laughs> but anyway, we've done him. We'll never stop beating that horn. Um, it's it's interesting, of course, that one of our early casts was dealing with a movie with a character by the name of Archie Leach. Of course, this film stars the uh, best-known Cary Grant. Of course, that was his real name. If I may angle the cast in that direction, I'm not talking about the cast because, I mean, that's such a rich vein to tap here. Because you have this amazing cast of actors here. Grant was uh, Hitchcock's choice from the word go. However, he did get uh, James Stewart interested. What happened was Hitchcock was trying to tell Stewart about the project, uh, all along planning to get Grant, but Stewart got so interested, he thought he was being offered the film. Aww. And so what Hitchcock did to spare his feelings was he waited until Stewart was committed to another film, um, Anatomy of a Murder, it should be noted. So uh, it wasn't like he... It wasn't like he was having to uh, go on to something uh, regrettable. It was that film. Uh, and then he uh, politely offered him the part, which, knowing Stuart would have to decline it. So it worked out nicely for everybody, but... Clever. Clever on his part. Yeah. Very clever. And, and very nice. Uh, a rare bit of uh, kindness by Hitchcock. W- way better than uh, casting the part, offering it, to another person and then uh, having them both shoot on the same day. Read the disaster artist. Yeah, yeah. We're not gonna, again, we're not gonna stop bringing up things that we still think. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, and admittedly, wouldn't we all love to be in the position where you have James Stewart and Cary Grant interested in your project? Jesus. It's funny, when I, when I first got into Hitchcock, I had no idea that Jimmy Stewart was in a lot of his films. Yeah, and really brilliantly used. Uh, Stewart had a lot of darkness in him that uh, Hitchcock was able to tap, and I, I suspect we'll probably be getting to his works, uh, some of his works next year. Uh, oh, absolutely. But you know, with Grant, this was really perfect casting because at this point in his career, Grant was fifty-five. Um, so still a good-looking guy. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Very pretty man. Still, probably age-wise, probably a little older than the part called for, um, especially in that era. Especially when the leading lady in the film claims that she's 26. Yeah. I know she's not 26, come on. No, uh, but yeah, still, he's clearly much older than she is. But you know what? We believe it. It's hard in this era not to think not to compare Grant to his modern day equivalent, uh, uh, George Clooney. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, who is also at a similar point uh, age wise, and you know, you also don't blink um, when he's cast alongside younger women. Cause it's like, oh yeah, of course, of course. But you know, getting to uh, Grant, he does an amazing job here because he plays the part clearly understanding just how moronic all of these events are. And he is having fun. Grant was legendarily one of the most uh, charming 
uh, actors ever to set foot on the screen, and oh, it, it comes through. The guy oozes charisma. He just, he does. I, I love the scene where he's uh, walking through the room, and the woman yells, Stop! Oh, excuse me. Yeah, <laughs> I love that scene, and I believe it completely. It is a brilliant scene. It's, it's clever and it's funny, and again, we believe it because we just believe Grant so fully, and we don't doubt this guy. And that's one of the great fun scenes. Obviously, if you're talking about Hitchcock, you got to talk about the blonde, and I really feel like Saint stands out against a lot of Hitchcock's characters because she is one of the strongest. Was she in any of his other films? I don't know. I don't know. Because I know he uh, um, he did like to attach himself to his uh, leading ladies. Not really in that way. Sorry, it's complicated. But uh, yeah, he yeah, but he did like to use some of his leading ladies over and over. Her character really, even today, stands as a really strong character. She has that great interplay with Grant. She matches him line for line. Oh, she does. Oh, you're that type. What type? Honest. Not really. Good, because honest women frighten me. Because you're not honest with them. Exactly. And it's not like there's double entendres in this movie. No, most of those are single. Tell me, why are you so good to me? Shall I climb up and tell you why? Nope, they're just entendres. Yeah, it's it's a very blatant... I mean, when again, I keep going back to this point. This is a very sex-heavy film. Oh, yeah. It's on a lot of characters' minds. I also remember there was a thing uh, Hitchcock did a workaround because he really liked... Uh, whenever characters are making out, he really likes moving the camera around them. You know, this kind of a big sweeping move. Uh, in a train car, you can't do that. So he just had them twirl around themselves. That was a good move. It works. And he's right, that sense of motion is really effective. It, it captures that feeling. I mean, I, I, I think that's, that's, that's uh, honestly, it's kind of sweet in its way, but, I mean, it's, it's interesting to look at a woman like uh, Saint uh, Eve in this movie, because even today, you often don't see women written that strongly, that fiercely. There's really something appealing about that, that transcends time. Uh, it hardly hurts she's a gorgeous woman in her youth. Especially when they're, like, uh, uh, romantic leads. I mean, I've seen some pretty pathetic damsels in distress, even in the modern day. And so it, it's great to see this woman who is completely on top of the situation, much more so than even the main character. Oh god, yeah. And yeah, she slips in the scene, oh well. Even in the end, when she's uh, being carried away, as she's you know being led to the plane, she's always just like, come on, Roger. Well, just looking back at the house, and you can see, you can see her weighing her options, whether she should just make a break for it, whether she should just, like, each moment leading up to the plane... Like what what she should do, and of course, yeah, she takes action. She when she sees Roger come out of the house, she she grabs the statue and bolts. It's, it's a really great character. Wheels never stop turning. As thin as 
a lot of the plot is, I did like her motivations. I like the fact that they established that she was a complicated character. I haven't talked much about the villains, but James Mason was awesome. As uh, Van Damme is his character's name. Now, shall we get down to business? I'm all for that. Quite simply, I'd like you to tell me how much you know of our arrangements. Oh. And, of course, how you've come by this information. Naturally, I don't expect to get this for nothing. Of course not. Don't misunderstand me. I don't really expect you to fall in with this suggestion. But the least I can do is afford you the opportunity of surviving the evening. Boy, there's a name that you know automatically there, the bad guy. Yeah. Although, uh, as good as he is, it's probably uh, his right-hand man is probably the name that most people that are listening to this, at least of our age, are going to know, uh, Martin Landau. Yes. He's young. Yeah, very young in this. Um, this is pre-Mission Impossible for him. So, very early days of his career. And did you pick up on the interesting subtext about his character? Gay? Gay. 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 Just some key phrasing and things that he does. The line about, Call it my woman's intuition, if you will. True. I did wonder about that. Which is interesting, because, um, guys, homosexuality was not invented in the late part of the 20th century. Yeah. It's been around since forever. And it's been in film since forever. You just had to know where to look for it. And this is an example. This isn't the only time Hitchcock has done a comment on homosexuality. I don't exactly know whether it's homophobic or not. I don't either, which is interesting because, you know, I, I don't know, because he wasn't adverse to it. He worked with at least two leading men who it's widely believed were at least bisexual. Yeah, so I, like, I'm gonna say no, because, you know, it's not really, even though that's a subtext of that character... It's not really, like, tied to the fact that he's a bad guy. He's not a screaming queen, and he is a tough guy. He is, he is. Uh, he's intimidating. Yeah, it's it's just there. It, it's just there, and personally, I love when I see that. It's just there. It's just there. So yeah, I'm gonna go with no on that. Rope might be a different matter, but... Well, rope is, an, is a tough case, because that's based on a real case. Ah, uh, yeah. And uh, the Leopold Loeb murder doesn't exactly make uh, homosexuality look great in real life. No, it's, it's not a very endorsement. But, uh, yeah. But as I said, I, I like the villains in this. I, I, I like the villains. I like that, yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty black and white. They're, they're not good guys. But again, we know nothing about them beyond they're working for the bad guys. The only real line we're fed is about the Cold War. War is hell, Mr. Thornhill, even when it's a cold one. He, he, and, and that's it. He doesn't even say it's the Russians. Yeah, I love the, I love the professor who is essentially Captain Exposition. <laughs> this is true. Oh, no, Mr. Thornhill, there is no such person as George Kaplan. What do you mean there's no such person? Believe me, Mr. Thornhill, he doesn't exist. Which is why I'm going to have to ask you to go on being him for the next 24 hours. Come on, we'll discuss it on the plane. He's a great deus ex machina. He literally, essentially fills the role that you would see of a king or a god in a Greek play. He comes in, he sorts everything out. True. It, it's not dissimilar. I just saw uh, the new version of Much Ado About Nothing, which should be out on DVD by the time you're Yeah, yeah, it comes out today, actually. Yeah. 
And I mean, it's a similar situation where at the ending, everything is literally just puzzled out. Okay, this guy, this, this guy, this, you know, okay, we got this information, that information. Okay, now it's all better. And I'm not knocking that because it's funny how much as bad as that device is, it's funny how often it works and it does work here. Yeah, it really does. You don't give it a second thought either. No, you don't. This guy is in charge of the operation. He literally knows everything. It's like, okay, good enough. It's just very effective. And again, it's it's funny. We, we got to talk about the UN scene. Yes, this is this is where permissions uh, comes into play. Of course, everything inside the UN is a set. But as far as filming outside the actual UN, yes, they did film outside the actual UN. They had a shot of Cary Grant going up the steps. They had a shot of the bad guys going up the steps. Those shots are stolen. The UN did not give them permission to film. They did ask, right? I think they asked, and the UN's response was, you gotta be kidding us. <laughs> you can't film here, no. So, of course, they, they did the sensible thing and parked a truck across the street with a cam- with a 35mm camera aimed squarely at the front and uh, had their actor go up the steps. In fact, if you watch that scene carefully, there's a flub in it. Oh, yeah? Uh, one of the... Uh, unintentional extras looks at Grant in shock. <laughs> Realizing who he is? Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna have to go back and see that. That's wonderful. Yeah, one of the uh, people on the steps looks at and is like, holy shit, it's Cary Grant. Definitely a face that someone in that era would recognize. But yeah, so you have that stolen shot, and I love that Hitchcock did that. Yeah, it, it, it lends a lot of authenticity to it, and, uh, you know, it's better than it's better than any matte painting or model or whatever it would have been. He uh, he had another similar situation I was reading about where uh, when he's going from the plaza to somewhere else, I forget where, the rear projection on that is actually the route that would, someone would have taken. That's cool. That's a nice detail. Which is funny because at the same time, Hitchcock was not afraid to get very blatantly phony with the rear projection. We haven't talked about the drunk driving scene. The drunk driving. Cary Grant, his drunken acting is just like, oh, oh, it's something you'd, it's something you'd expect Liam Neeson to do. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because if, if I've read my uh, film history correct, uh, Grant certainly, you know, like all actors of that day, knew his way around alcohol. He has... Fun with that scene. That scene's hilarious. Yeah, and the rear projection is also, as you said, it's disorienting. It's clever because it does capture what being drunk feels like. Yeah, yeah. What a stupid method of killing someone, by the way. Right, because how could that not, how could that not happen? Where he just like pushes him out of the car and then just takes it. That's exactly the result that they deserved. The bad guys in this movie choose. Whenever there's the sane and sensible option, they don't choose the sane and sensible option. They choose the craziest possible option. Rather than just uh, disposing of Eve's character right there in the building, and uh, they decide to get her up in the air, just push her out, basically. Foolproof. I mean, these characters, they make the most insane decisions. And I loved it. Yeah. And it's worth noting the drunk driving scene then leads to the great scene at the uh, police station. You'll be all right after a good night's sleep. We got a nice cell all made up and waiting. I don't want a cell. I want a policeman. Stick out your tongue and say, ah. You better move back. Ah. Have you been drinking? Doc, uh, I am gassed. 
Who does he end up calling but his mother? I, I love what a shameless mother's boy he was. Yes. And it's worth noting that the actress that played his mother in the film was only eight years older than he was. Ha! Really? And amazingly, that's not the most egregious uh, casting of a mother in a uh, classic movie. Manchurian Candidate, Angela Lansbury, was only, I think, three years at the older than, at the most older than uh, Lawrence Harvey in it. Good Christ. Yeah. Not that that hurt that film. It's subject for another cast, but uh, we're just letting that one sit out there. Yeah, I mean, I love that that scene where, yeah, he, he's calling his mother. And I, I, I love that the film never really calls much attention to the fact that, okay, this is pathetic how much of a mama's boy this guy is. It's just kind of a funny trait. I, I can't imagine a macho action hero in the modern day, although admittedly this character is far from macho. But, like, I can't imagine someone in this era thinking, okay, we're going to play a character who's just shamelessly devoted to his mother. Like, isn't even in the opening scene when he's going to send the telegram, isn't it to his mother? Um. Yeah, because she's somewhere that doesn't have a phone. Yeah, I think now that you mention it, it is. Because he, uh, he wants the secretary to call. I think it's about his mother. It's not really to his mother. Yeah. It's to to his secretary saying, hey, uh, she's not going to be reachable. Yes. And, of course, that's another detail that stops the film, you know, from being remakeable, is the fact that, well, everybody has cell phones. Right. You know, they'd find a way around that, but um, it's still it's still very much it, of its era. I love the look of the film, too. I hate that we can't really convey that in the podcast, but, man, that era just looked great. Is, isn't this Hitchcock's uh, Vista Vision era? Or I don't, yes. I don't, yes. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure if this film was a Vista Vision. I think it was. Yeah, it was, because MGM wanted him to shoot it in another process, and he said no. For those who don't know, this division is the process by which typically the way film is recorded is all the pictures are in a in a vertical line down the film strip. And this division is the process by which the film is horizontal. And what that does is it makes the picture bigger. And uh, therefore it has more detail. It can have more color. Um, I think that it's separated into different colors and then combined later i could be wrong on that but yeah it's it's a very rich process i'm not sure anybody uses it anymore well no because everything's gone digital yeah well yeah now but it's true rumble, rumble. yeah but um hitchcock uses that in many of its films and it makes them look gorgeous again it's just such a beautiful looking movie it the colors pop. And of course, the styles that people wore uh, really were pretty iconic. In fact, uh, I know that Hitchcock was upset with the uh, wardrobe that was being put on Saint. He sent her out to a department store in New York and had her do her stuff that way, get her wardrobe that way. So, so the character looked like someone who was wearing the top modern styles. That's good. Yeah, it's, it's really, again, it's effective. It looks good. Yeah. Grant's suit actually became a trend, I, I want to say. Because of because of the movie? Yeah. Because again, this was a very successful film. And it should have been. Yeah. Yeah, I can absolutely see this being... Uh, the term blockbuster hadn't been coined yet, but I can see it being a blockbuster. 
I, I mean, again, I, I, I feel like a film like this would do good and would do just as well in modern day. It's fun. I guess if there's one other point that I want to hit, it's the score. The score. As you listen to the cast, you'll notice that the score is is underlining it. So it is something we can show off. Bernard Herrmann. Man. Genius. His, his scores are legendary. Just listen to that. Isn't that great? It's so classic and exciting. I mean, you listen to this and you're on the edge of your seat. I mean, it's just one of those things. It grabs your ear. And never lets go. No. It, 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 it's fun. Even listening to just a few notes of it last night, I was struck by how much it came back into my mind. It's a great piece of music. I've run my mouth um, for things that I wanted to point out. So, anything you want to point out? Well, one thing... Another flub, I always see it, I always see it, when in the scene in the Mount Rushmore Visitor Center where she shoots him, there's a whole crowd of extras behind. There's a little boy. Now, if you watch the little boy, you could tell in every shot that he's in, he's always aware of the action behind him. He you know, he looks at the actors and turns back. She says a line, and then he knows that that's the cue for the gun to come out, so he plugs his ears. Because he knows that the uh, that she's gonna fire that blank, it's gonna be really loud. That's right. It's a great thing to look for. I always see it. I can see why Hitchcock left that in. Did he intentionally? I don't know, but I gotta figure he probably did. Yeah, it's an iconic club. It's great. Yeah, other than that, um, yeah, the scene, the chase down Mount Rushmore is great. The uh, yeah, his cameo is great. There's a there's a shot. Like it's, I think it's a map painting, but where he's exiting the UN, he's making his exit after having been framed for murder, and there's a brilliant Hitchcockian shot from one of the windows of the building, and it's just looking straight down into the courtyard where you can see a bunch of cars parked in a circle, and you can see people walking on the sidewalk, and you can see him run to a cab and get in. I think that's a map painting effect, but at the same time, you can see people moving down there. It's a great effect. It's a good time place effect. It's 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 well done. But yeah, there's just there's a lot in this movie to appreciate. I, I will say this: I recommend that after people see the film, they seek out. Uh, it's online. A copy of uh, Layman's script. It's very detailed, and the stage directions are great on it. It's a good read, and it really lets you appreciate how good the dialogue is. The scene I, I didn't mention it, but the scene after the auction where. He, you know, at this point, Thornhill knows just how bad things are. The scene in the auction is great, too. Uh, I mean, like, yeah. if I was to sit here and talk about how about great scenes in this movie, it's just easier to say, watch the film. Right. But the, 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 the dialogue that he has with the cops is great. It's ridiculous. It is. It's just, you can tell it's just them having fun. This is just a really entertaining film. It's well worth your time. Very much so. Lord by Northwest, seek it out. It's one of Hitchcock's best. Back in high school when I was like way, way into Hitchcock and trying to watch every single one of his films, uh, my favorites would jump around and this stuck out as one. Yeah. I, again, it, and I think high school is a good place to see it for the first time because it it just plays well to that audience. I'm glad I watched it there because that is what I saw. Right 
for the first time at least. So I guess we should talk about what's next. Next time, we are going to watch Psycho. Yep, because it's Halloween, you know. That's 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 a true horror movie. We're going to watch Psycho. We're going to talk about Psycho. We're also going to watch and compare to the 1998 version. Which, I mean, look, even before we get there, without having seen it, we're going to compare Anthony Perkins in the iconic performance that he gave as Norman Bates to Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates. Somehow I don't want really to feel like that's going to be much of a comparison. It's, it's not. Like, it's it's a shot-for-shot shot remake. It's more that we need to discuss it and we need to watch it. Yeah, we, we, need to, we need to address the existence of it. So, that's what's next for us. Yes. That'll be fun. I'm looking forward to that. It's like it was another one I haven't seen in a while. It's been well for me, too. Yeah. Uh, and that'll be our uh, final one for Hitchcocktober for this year. But, but yeah. Uh, so... You can email us at filmroompodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on the Twitters. Uh, we are at filmroomcast. Uh, our individual Twitters, I am at primitivemanpod. Uh, Austin is at untitleduter. Uh, we talk about multitude of things on all those accounts. Movies, life, etc., etc., etc. You can like us on Facebook. The direct address for that is facebook.com slash thefilmroom. Uh, we post a lot of stuff on there, too. If you're coming at us from iTunes, you can find us at our blog. Uh, we post uh, lots of supplemental material for each cast. It's thefilmroom.podbean.com. Subscribe to us there, whatever your preferred method. And, of course, we are on iTunes. And that's it for that. Yep. Keep an ear out. Yeah. I'm Austin Shin. I'm Albert Wiltzwag. Till next time. I meet an attractive woman, I have to start pretending I've no desire to make love to her. What makes you think you have to conceal it? She might find the idea objectionable. Then again, she might not. I tipped the steward five dollars to seat you here if you should come in. Is that a proposition? I never discuss love on an empty stomach. Her voice may have been saying disgust, but her lips were in fact saying... I never did love on an empty stomach.